While artificial intelligence is certainly gaining traction in finance, we still find that most of our subscribers are in a phase where they're trying to A, catch up in terms of talent and data infrastructure, and B, figure out where there's real traction for AI and finance, whether these are people in banking or investing or in insurance. Uh, these are still the questions that are top of mind. And we try to explore a number of them in this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast. In this episode, we interview two folks from Spark Cognition. Spark Cognition is an Austin-based firm, one of the most well-funded firms out of Austin, Texas. Uh, we interview Carlos Pazos and Anwar Gauch. Uh, Anwar runs the finance division of Spark Cognition and helps us to explore some of the technical side of things. Carlos helps to refine a little bit of the language and some of the use cases as well. We dive into three main topics. First things first, and I think this would be relevant for almost everyone in finance, how to maximize a smaller data science team, how to get more done with a smaller team. Secondly, how is AI and alternative data being used for quantum mental investing? Some of you are already familiar with that term. Some of you are not. But this is a big sort of phase in the world of investing where sort of a new paradigm to some degree is being formed and shaped using satellite data, using alternative data sources to really be able to inform investing decisions. Where is there real traction there? Where is there opportunity for AI? I think anyone in trading, whether you're in quantum mental specifically or not, will want to tune in to that part of the interview. And then lastly, loan processing and underwriting, these kind of rote and somewhat potentially boring processes in finance. How is AI chipping away there? Where is the progress in terms of automation? Where is white collar automation actually chiseling its way forward? And I think that again, that'll be kind of eye-opening for anyone interested in process automation broadly. So hopefully this episode is valuable. But without further ado, we'll dive into this episode with Spark Cognition here on AI and Industry. So Anwar, I wanted to begin with you and talk about the first theme of the interview here today, which is really around quantum mental investing. I think that there's sort of a sea change here in terms of how alternative data and AI are sort of changing the game for quantum mental investing. I think some folks are going to wonder, what does quantum mental investing mean? But also, where is AI starting to make a difference? I hope you could give us an overview. Sure. Let me start here. So quantum mental investing means different things to different people. So if you look at what Morgan Stanley published around last year, this time, they see this as more about combining quant factors for screening with fundamental analysis for stock picking. If you were to ask some of the more quant heavy folks, they would tell you that it's about using fundamental factors in a quantitative and systematic trading environment. The way I see it, it's a bit more of a spectrum where the bulk of the quantum mental analysts are using quantitative methods to analyze the alternative data and using the output as a piece of the puzzle in their fundamental analysis. Okay, so yeah, you see it as a bit of a kind of merger of the two in some way. Yeah. Yeah, yep, okay. So, so essentially, some of the examples that are more prominent today is, for example, using natural language processing to do some sentiment analysis on a retailer's Twitter channel, or for example, looking at uh, doing image processing on parking lot imagery from satellite and drones, yep. and then trying to correlate those to find and estimate the sales of a certain retailer. That's an example. 
then the combination of this alternative data, because you could be looking at more than one just source of data for a particular stock or a particular sector. And the combination of those alternative data is really a big effort by itself. And that's where we're seeing more of the supervised learning models being used to integrate and then predict the sales or the earnings or the stock price of a certain company. Yeah, it seems like a very hands-on process, Anwar. In other words, it is very self-evident what a stock price is. You know, it's very self-evident what's happening in a candlestick chart. It is, I imagine, somewhat interpretable as to how many cars are in these Walmart parking lots on the East Coast. You know, there might be fog and we can't see it one day. There might be some differences between cars that we think are employees versus cars that we think are customers. It seems as though it gets fuzzy at a granular level and would involve a good deal of work to try to turn that into something quantifiable that we could inform an algorithm with. It's not just numbers there. So that that does feel pretty hands-on. You mentioned supervised. Is that what you were implying? So, I mean, you bring up a good point is that a lot of these analyses tend to be a bit more siloed. And the key thing here is using machine learning and supervised learning in a scalable way. So for example, you may not see a big surge of cars in a parking lot on one day and say, okay, I should be buying the stock of this company. But what you may be able to find is that over time, you're finding more cars parked in the parking lot for longer periods of time or at earlier and earlier throughout the day. And then you'll find some correlations between that and a hike in sales or a hike in earnings of that particular retailer. Yeah. So to some degree, you brought up a few examples. You brought up sentiment analysis. So let me know if you think this is a good way to phrase it. I've sort of heard it articulated this way, Anwar. When we see stock prices shifting, we see buying Mm -hmm. and selling, what we're really seeing is that that is a reflection of things happening in the world. And things happening in the world could be, like you said, customers buying or customers not buying. It could be shipments going from one port to another. That's also satellite data. Or it can be the opinions, the sentiments, the emotions of people, which we're trying to proxy based on social media. It seems like sort of what we're trying to do here is get to quantifying the root stuff that's actually causing the movements in the market in the first place. Is that a good way to sum this up? Absolutely. And and once you have this model, your own model of combining this information and linking those to the company, this is where you really start to automate some of this, this process. So for example, now that you have a certain system in place where you're able to ingest all the data, where you're able to coordinate all of these and link these into the right environment, That's where you start automating the process, and now you can start looking at more and more data sources, and now you can look to refine your models and make them more accurate. Yes, yep, and and that's obviously kind of hands-on, that's supervised. There's so much to kind of think about and strategize on what data do we take seriously? You know, what are we going to call a customer vehicle versus not a customer vehicle? That's that's hard work. You brought up a couple examples, satellite data, sentiment analysis from social. What are maybe a couple other sources of this outside data that we would need machine learning and, and artificial intelligence to sort of help to interpret? I think some folks might not have a good range of what kinds of data could be useful here. Yeah. So, I mean, this can go all the way from credit card purchases to website traffic to app downloads all of those are fair game. So yeah, essentially anything that could, anything that we believe is indicative and meaningful in terms of the performance of a stock, a company, a nation, something that could move in the market. Absolutely. I mean, the way to look at alternative data or the way to define it is any information that is not taken from the SEC filings or the equivalent of the SEC filings that would be helpful for the investment process. And so 
that's typically a lot of data. They're typically unstructured, not in a nice, neat report. And it tends to lend itself very nicely to the use of machine learning and AI because it's just more than what a human being can go and sift through manually. Yeah, so I think I would be able to take a stab at a pretty good explanation here, but you are the man for the job for this interview. You know, in terms of, well, why is AI necessary for this quantum mental element? And I think you just put your finger on it. Essentially, what we're looking at here is often very unstructured, open-ended data. And in order to drink that in at scale and coax out those patterns at scale, we can't just have enough interns or enough employees with enough spreadsheets creating labels and finding these patterns. We need a system that could actually do it because it's so complex and so broad. Is that safe to assume? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, really what we're seeing auto ML systems like Darwin play a big area is in the ability to retrain those models and expand them to ingest more information and more data in a rapid and scalable way. And so if I were to characterize what is an AI system for quantum investing, at the core of it is self-adaptability and self-improvement, and, and that's where we're seeing Darwin play. Got it. And in terms of where, where you're seeing this expand into, when I first saw this sort of trend or heard of this trend kind of taking hold, this might have been three and a half years ago in sort of the, the hedge fund space when maybe satellite mm-hmm. data first was starting to move in. Are you seeing this kind of shuffle its way into general sort of mid-size large banks or, or where, where are you starting to see this quantum mental trend leveraging AI make its way into finance? Where is it gaining hold, gaining traction? Yeah, it's definitely still concentrated in the hands of a few large asset managers, be it independent hedge funds or even if they're housed as part of a, of a banking conglomerate. But the investment in those in terms of acquiring the data, acquiring the, the auto ML tools and acquiring the, the IT infrastructure to, to handle all of this data is, is still quite substantial. Yep. And so it's still in the hands of some of those large players. Got it. And I think that'll transition us well into the next topic here. And, and Carlos, I think maybe you could tackle this one first, which is making the most of a smaller data science team. AutoML is obviously a big part of what Spark Cognition does. And I think a lot of, whether it's banks, financial institutions, might not have the same IT team, data science team as JP Morgan or as Citibank. Where does AutoML fit in for not just maybe making AI more accessible or easier to use, but in kind of augmenting and expanding the ability of a smaller data science team. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And and that's precisely the, the ultimate goal of AutoML, to be able to expand the capabilities of existing teams. And while in financial services, like uh, the industry itself, uh, uh, I consider they're ahead in terms of building these teams of data scientists. Um, I mean, still, right, like uh, the level of applications and the, and the amount of, of things that they have to do as Emmer was telling, like it's not just about building one model and you're ready to go, right? Because the, the moment you deploy that that model and you have new data, it's already obsolete. Yep. So that continuously working on the model, that's critical and that's a lot of busy work. So AutoML for this kind of teams in financial institutions is like playing first the role of augmenting your capabilities in terms of being able to rapidly uh, prototype scenarios that they need to try with new sets of data but also being able to provide scalability inside the, the institution. Like there are certain models that they have been created, certain models that uh, need to be maintained. And that's where AutoML can provide and facilitate, yeah, like that process of continuously creating and maintaining those models. 
Yeah, and the ability to kind of scale, as you had said, sort of to expand what we're already doing. Maybe put a bit of a finger on that, if you could, Carlos, as to what that expanding looks like, kind of where the normal boundary boxes are to that expanding happening across the data science team and sort of where AutoML fits in to sort of allow that to occur. I think that'd be cool to articulate if we could. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, in terms of scalability, so once you are done with a prototyping phase, and, and this is true not just for financial services, just for any sort of institution dealing with machine learning, yep. you have one model, right? But uh, truly, uh, when it comes to deploying, you're not just servicing one final user, let's say like marketing or sales or even something more industrial that uh, would be like a, a specific piece of machinery, right? Now you have to replicate that in order to serve uh, the rest of our organization. And that could be like other members within marketing, other members within sales, other pieces of machinery. And that implies that model that you create for, uh, for a single application, now you have to replicate that model across all those different scenarios. Because it could be that, for, uh, for instance, that you are creating a customer churn model for a specific financial product. But then there's still like another customer churn model, but now it's for a different financial product, right? So you have different sets of data there. And uh, while the problem uh, might look similar, in reality, what uh, you end up doing is actually having to create a totally different model. As a matter of fact, like each model that you create for every specific application, it has to be different. It's something unique that uh, has to be created for that specific application. You cannot start doing generalizations. That's just bad data science. That's something that you cannot do because you're going to start getting bad predictions, right? So that process of constantly serving other business units within that institution and constantly generating models, it's uh, a lot of busy work. And that's when uh, AutoML can actually help in terms of like data scientists that, uh, first of all, that they're hard to find and they have very specialized knowledge. They should using their creativity. They should using their intellect in solving uh, advanced complex uh, problems versus the day-to-day data science, all the busy work of dealing with the data, testing certain scenarios, building models, and being able to maintain those models, that's something that we can upload to AutoML. Got it. So the incessant, ongoing, tweaking, iterating adjustments of all the projects that we start, you could see that requiring a scaling in the number of people that have to do that ongoing tweaking. But I guess the idea here in general is that if some of that can be adjusted in real time, or at least some portions of that process can be adjusted in real time by an AutoML system, then hypothetically, we can just get a lot more out of a team of half a dozen or a dozen data scientists. Yeah, absolutely. Because think about it, like uh, a model will never be perfect. A model will never be final. So they have to constantly update those models to provide uh, predictions that are as accurate as possible. On the other side, uh, you have the, the people that they are serving. Right, people uh, in other business units. In general, you have centralized teams of data scientists, and even for big corporations, like they might sound ridiculous that they have uh, in their like between five, uh, fifteen data scientists, and that's for a big team, and they have to serve a lot of scenarios, right? And uh, people from the business perspective is like, oh, so we have a team that is actually dedicated to solve this kind of data problems. So now they become a, a services organization in terms of like, hey, I, I want now a model that is able to predict this specific scenario. Now I want another model capable of predicting this other specific scenario. So they end up caught in, in this loop of continuously serving this kind of request. What AutoML brings to the table is to actually free up their time to uh, uh, dedicate their intellect again and, and creativity in major problems. That they, they require creativity, 
and they require their experience to create more value back to the organization. Yeah, novel insights, subject matter expertise, contextual ideas, places where kind of the, the human brain would be, let's say, much more necessary today than some of the more minor iterating adjustment steering of, of existing algorithms or adjustment of existing algorithms than those kind of tasks where maybe it's, again, not as much of a unique human contribution. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that, that is correct. Like uh, AutoML, at its very essence, it, it can work at different levels. It can work just trying to fit the, the right algorithm on a specific data, which is a little bit more kind of like just forcing the algorithm to the data. Yep. Uh, or the other way around, which is more creating something custom, right? And that's something that, w- that we do very unique here at Spark Cognition is uh, the search of uh, neural architectures, building uh, the right topology of those architectures and truly tailoring that to specific data at hand. Now, uh, that said, even with that level of customization, machine learning still requires that interaction of the human in terms of like, okay, yes, you took me from zero to model in a very accelerated fashion, but I still have to interpret that, right? I, I still have to take the results of that process, validate it, and put it into practice. And this requires not just the part of the data scientist to, to understand that part, but also, as you mentioned, like a, a subject matter expert as well, to be able to validate the, the results that the model is generating. And, and that's the, the right problem. How, how do you dedicate resources that actually have these two levels of understanding from the science perspective, but also from the business perspective? And it's almost like finding unicorns. It's, it's really hard to find that, right? So truly, that's why uh, these kind of teams I struggle with in terms like, yes, the, the bandwidth that they have, uh, limited resources, the time constraints that they have in terms like, hey, we have so many requests coming from, from business units, uh, from multiple projects, and they have to serve all that. Then it's not just, a, as, as I was mentioning, a one-time deployment. They have to continue maintaining the projects that they have created in the past. And, and, and also, they're part of the innovation team, right? And, and uh, it's defining the name of that group. They have to continue innovating. But at the same time, all their bandwidth is being consumed by maintaining and, and all those models, all that busy work. So, Yeah, and maybe one last question on this kind of leveraging of, of AutoML and finance before we sort of pivot into our last question more around lending, and then we'll pass it back to Anwar. At what phase in sort of the growth or the, I guess, AI innovation frequency of of an organization, do you see AutoML kind of making its way in? In other words, I can imagine that there's a certain level of maturity that might occur when AutoML then becomes kind of in demand. What what is that threshold point that you often see as kind of the trigger when a team sort of realizes this might be something that they need? Yeah, that that depends on the the industry. Uh, Specifically for financial services is when uh, they start seeing these bottlenecks. These bottlenecks in terms of productivity that are sacrificing innovation. And that's when, the, um, for this industry, uh, it's not hard for them to see the value of automation, especially because they already know like uh, machine learning uh, and, uh, and artificial intelligence as the tools that will take them to the, to the next level and, and actually been able to develop a competitive edge. So uh, that's not a problem for them. It's truly when uh, they're hitting that wall of dedicating those resources for busy work. It's harder in other industries in terms of like they're trying to dedicate resources that they don't have a data science background. And, and that's hard, again, because you don't get out of the university knowing that there's, there's no yeah. career path for it. Yep. But uh, traditional software engineers, traditional subject matter experts, 
they get faced uh, with that. It's like, hey, now you have to implement that. And it's as uh, till they hit that wall, uh, it's like, hey, this is not that straightforward. And it does require a, a level of understanding. And if you will, art in terms of like being able to generate this kind of models, uh, that's where they see the value of AutoML. It's not just from the side of productivity of existing full-fledged data science teams, but also to, uh, to be able to accelerate things for teams that just started and uh, are trying to, to implement machine learning. Got it. Okay. So hopefully for some of the folks who are tuned in, this is a, maybe a little bit of a proxy for what might be those threshold moments in your own organization as to when these tools might sort of find their place. I know that the last sort of application of AI and finance that we were going to talk about here is more in uh, loan processing and underwriting. And, and Anwar, maybe you can sort of color in the lines here. When it comes to sort of where loan processing and underwriting are really beginning to be automated, where AI is you know, improving efficiencies there, actually taking some of those processes and handling them with machines, where, where is loan processing and underwriting really being changed today? So I would say, first of all, automated loan processing and underwriting, I mean, has been around for a few years now. It essentially started with smaller loans. It started with credit cards and personal loans. But today, we're able to see this in some of the auto loans and mortgages. That being said, those early lenders, what they were doing is they developed a few programs that were just a set of rules based on a few indicators, such as, for example, somebody's FICO score. And based on a few indicators, the rules would decide whether or not to uh, automatically give a loan to the individual. And whenever those systems were unable to clearly accept giving the loans, they would just refer the applicant to an agent for manual processing. So this is kind of the the old school version of loan automation to some degree, the the kind of if-then rules, passing somebody along. Yep. So obviously this is evolving now with machine learning and with a lot more vendor and kind of venture money going behind it. Where is it shifting? Let me just mention one other side of the coin, and then I'll, I'll move oh, to Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And so once an organization has developed an automated loan model, what they really need to do is to monitor the loans that have been given out and to monitor the default and delinquency rates of those loans. And eventually, over time, they would tweak those rules and filters to try to reduce the amount of manual underwriting. Today, and over time, what we've seen is lenders have identified two things that could be improved in this process. One, they've seen that there's a lot of information out there that could be helpful in determining the creditworthiness of an individual. And two, they've seen that if you somehow connect the analysis of the automated loan performance to the system that approves the loans, you could really optimize this model to give out more loans with fewer default rates. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep, it does. And machine learning is coming into this to really replace those rigid legacy rules-based models because they're more scalable, because they're able to handle more information, because they're able to be updated with more information. That's essentially where machine learning came into play. Yeah, and you know, I, I guess the marketing analogy here that comes to mind for me is sort of the idea of the audience of one that you know the future of marketing is not going to be people in different buckets, but it's going to be a specific pattern of behavior, pattern of data and details and timing for each individual person. I guess that's the kind of golden dream here in terms of marketing, presuming that the results can follow. Uh, with lending, from what I gather, more data sources, more ways to sort of uh, proxy the risk per an individual 
presumably might mean a better ability to kind of granularly assess sort of lending risk, yes or no, for any given applicant, hopefully, if we have more data and we can train broader systems without those rigid rules. Absolutely. So the idea is, I mean, you, you can imagine that those rigid rules that were put in place were overly conservative because the last thing an organization would want is to start giving out loans automatically and then finding out that all of those are defaulting later on. And so organizations they realize that over time they need to push more of their loans to the automated processing rather than the manual underwriting process, just because it, it's easier for customers, it's easier for their own teams. It, it, there's a lot of cost pressures on the lenders to reduce their costs and optimize their, their customer service. And, and we're seeing a strong wave of consolidation today as a result of that. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Um, you, you're just talking about companies buying other companies. If you have any examples there, what did you mean by consolidation? So Yeah, exactly. It's basically lenders that realize that there's a lot of cost pressures. They don't want to have as inflated of call centers. They don't want to have as large of teams for doing the manual underwriting, and they really need to reduce their costs. And this is where better automated loan processing and, and monitoring is, is coming into place. And in terms of sort of these new data sources, so you, you brought up, I think, a really good, important point. We're talking about improving efficiencies. Okay, there's pressure for lenders to improve efficiencies. Totally understood. I think that's business. Mm -hmm. The other aspect here that you brought up that I think is important is that the previous rules had to be overtly conservative because we have to lean on the side of not going bankrupt. Uh, and that might mean mm -hmm. saying no to loans that might be a yes if we had more granular assessments. So I take it the expanding of kind of market share uh, if we can find more opportunities to say yes that could be profitable would be useful. Is it also something to say, Anwar, that if we can adjust these models and tweak them kind of per individuals, maybe an organization could learn more effectively how to say yes to more profitable business like at scale than, than those absolutely. rigid rules would have let in? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where we're seeing tools like Darwin play a critical role in closing the gap between the loan origination and the loan monitoring process. And so with, with using AutoML, those companies are able to track the performance of the loans and then use that information to then better inform and lower the bar for the automated loan processing. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably something that when a lot of people think uh, machine learning, they think artificial intelligence, I think the assumption is we're reducing risk or we're improving efficiencies. You know, when we look mm -hmm. out into the finance landscape, that's where a lot of the dollars are, are sort of being allocated. I think lending is one of those interesting areas where it can actually tie to playing offense, not just defense. You know, we might be able to win more market share. We might be able to win more revenue here, not just save more on the bottom line. And it sounds like, you know, in terms of auto ML, that's maybe an encouraging factor for people to adopt and see the value of the tech. Yeah, absolutely. And think about it from the perspective of a customer that is just looking at two different mortgage lenders. If one of them is able to give them a loan automatically online versus another one that requires two to three weeks to make a loan decision, they'll probably go with the first one. Yeah, yeah. So winning on customer experience. Again, we, we don't see, I think, all that much focus on customer-facing AI applications and finance, a lot of this back-office optimization stuff. But I think lending, as you aptly put it, does sort of shift the customer's experience potentially and might be the difference between who wins and who loses. So excellent. Yep. And guys, that's all that we've got for time, but I appreciate you both being able to share some of your insights here on how AI and AutoML are sort of shifting things up in finance. So thanks so much for being able to join us on AI and in Industry. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of AI and Industry. This is your host, Dan Fagella. I hope that we catch you next week. Many of our executive listeners often get great ideas from our podcasts or our newsletters, but they end up coming to us for more help. So they might see some research project that we did with the World Bank, and they might want to do some of their own research on deeper market opportunities for AI in a specific sector or understanding the growth rates of AI in a certain domain. Uh, They might have seen some AI business strategy work that we've done with a pharmaceutical company and maybe ask about things along those lines or see one of the presentations that we've given at the United Nations and ask if we can speak at an event. Uh, And while we certainly do these things, uh, we're certainly involved with clients on pretty big projects on a regular basis, a lot of the time these messages will just end up in my personal inbox. People will find my email or they'll just find me on LinkedIn and send along a message. And this ends up being actually pretty tough to juggle at this point, given the travel schedule and given all the the client projects that we're involved in. And few people actually know, particularly people who only listen to the podcast and and aren't on Emerge.com or on the newsletter, uh, don't know that we actually have a services page that lists what we can help with. So we are not the best at everything, but in terms of what we do, which is mapping the capability space of AI and conveying that to executives in ways that help them win in the market, specific services tailored to that can be found at emerj.com slash services. So here at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, we work with government departments, we work with public companies, uh, we work with organizations who are serious about making AI a competitive advantage. And again, we actually do list sort of the programs that we have. So many of the podcast listeners don't know this. These messages end up in my inbox and then I'm you know, traveling for two weeks and I feel really bad that I get back to people later, but you can reach us through that services page or simply send along an email at services at emerj.com, services at emerj.com. From there, Dylan or Marcus or one of our team members will be able to get back to you much more quickly uh, than I would via LinkedIn. So if you're interested in doing more with what you've learned here, if you have serious business initiatives related to artificial intelligence and you want to take your organization to the next level, just simply reach us at emerge.com slash services that's emerj.com slash services or just email services at emerge.com that's emerge with a j so thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode next week again we're going to be diving into ai use cases and trends and conveying the transferable lessons that you can bring to your organization and i look forward to having you here next week